0: This audio lecture is based entirely upon the casebook, Professional Responsibility, an Open Source Casebook, by Brian L. Fry and Elizabeth Schiller. The casebook is licensed Creative Commons Zero, no rights reserved. That means that the authors have explicitly disclaimed any copyright claim in all of the original elements that they created in writing this casebook and have intentionally placed the casebook in the public domain. Much thanks is due to Brian and Elizabeth for writing this book and placing it in the public domain for everybody to use. In furtherance of this spirit of open source, I also license this audio lecture as Creative Commons Zero, No Rights Reserved. I hope you enjoy. Welcome back, everyone, to the Practice of Law. Audio lectures. This audio lecture is section two, the attorney client relationship. So, creating an attorney client relationship. And first, we should discuss clients as opposed to quasi clients. So, ideally, the formation of an attorney client relationship involves formalities like an engagement letter a retainer agreement, and the payment of attorney's fees. But none of these formalities are necessary. An attorney-client relationship may be formed whenever a person asks an attorney for legal advice and the attorney provides it. So long as a reasonable person could believe that an attorney-client relationship existed. I will refer to people An attorney intends to represent as clients, and people an attorney does not intend to represent as quasi-clients. An attorney has an express attorney-client relationship with clients and an implied attorney-client relationship with quasi-clients. But express and implied attorney-client relationships impose many of the same duties on the attorney. So the duties of an attorney. Attorneys owe certain legal duties to their clients and quasi-clients, whether they have an express attorney-client relationship or an implied attorney-client relationship. Those duties are reflected in the model rules of professional conduct. These are the duty of care. Attorneys have a duty to act with due diligence in pursuit of their client's interest. The duty of loyalty. Attorneys may not represent any party with an interest adverse to any of their clients and must refrain from self-dealing. The duty of impartiality. Attorneys must provide their clients with all of the information their clients need in order to make informed decisions. Attorneys must also exercise independent professional judgment and render candid advice. Duty of confidentiality. Attorneys must maintain in confidence all information obtained while representing their clients. It may not use any confidential client information in a way that could harm the client. Now, representing an organization. When an attorney represents an entity, the attorney's client is the entity, not the entity's agents. In other words, when an attorney represents a corporation, limited liability company, partnership or unincorporated association the attorney's client is the organization not the employees of the organization or to put it another way the attorney has an attorney client relationship with the organization but does not necessarily have an attorney client relationship with the employees of the organization specifically The attorney has a duty to represent the organization, even when its interests diverge from the interests of its employees. However, an attorney representing an organization must ensure that the employees of the organization understand that the attorney only represents the organization and not its employees. In other words, the employees must understand that the organization's attorney is not their attorney and that the organization's attorney has professional duties only to the organization. This can be difficult to explain, especially when employees identify their interests with those of the organization. But attorneys for organizations must clarify their legal relationship to the employees of those organizations in order to avoid creating an attorney-client relationship. Now, prospective clients. People in organizations do not always choose to form an attorney-client relationship immediately. Sometimes they consider forming an attorney-client relationship with multiple attorneys or firms before choosing one. A prospective client is a person or organization that discusses the possibility of forming an attorney-client relationship with an attorney or firm. If an attorney or firm learns confidential information from a prospective client, the attorney or firm may be precluded from representing other parties in the same matter, if their interests are adverse to those of the prospective client. Accordingly, attorneys should try to prevent prospective clients from disclosing confidential information in order to avoid disqualification from representing adverse parties. And attorneys must determine whether potential clients have disclosed any confidential information because it creates a duty of confidentiality. Model Rule 1.18, Client-Lawyer Relationship, notes that a person who consults with a lawyer about the possibility of forming a client-lawyer relationship with respect to a matter is a prospective client. Even when no client-lawyer relationship ensues, a lawyer who has learned information from a prospective client shall not use or reveal that information. Now, ending an attorney-client relationship. It is surprisingly easy to create an attorney-client relationship, and it can be surprisingly hard for an attorney to end one. In general, a client can end an attorney-client relationship at any time, for any reason, or for no reason at all. But attorneys cannot end an attorney-client relationship without good reason. Sometimes attorneys must end an attorney-client relationship And other times, the rules of professional conduct prevent attorneys from ending an attorney-client relationship. In any case, attorneys may have duties to their clients that survive the attorney-client relationship, especially the duty of confidentiality. Sometimes, an attorney must end an attorney-client relationship. For example, an attorney cannot represent a client If the client fires the attorney, the attorney cannot effectively represent the client, the attorney has a conflict of interest, or representation would violate the rules of professional conduct. Under certain circumstances, attorneys may choose to end an attorney-client relationship, but the ability of an attorney to end an attorney-client relationship is limited by the rules of professional conduct. Attorneys can end an attorney-client relationship only if they are permitted or required to end the relationship by the rules of professional conduct. They may be subject to discipline for ending an attorney-client relationship even if it is permitted or required by the rules of professional conduct. And they may have duties to former clients that survive the attorney-client relationship. Before ending an attorney-client relationship, an attorney should determine whether good cause exists to end the relationship. If an attorney ends an attorney-client relationship without good cause, the attorney may be subject to discipline and liable to the client for malpractice or breach of fiduciary duty. Typically, clients can end the attorney-client relationship simply by firing their attorney. A lawyer shall not represent a client, or shall withdraw from the representation of a client, if the lawyer is discharged. And as Section One of the Restatement observes, a client may discharge a lawyer at any time. However, a client's ability to fire an attorney and end the attorney-client relationship is not absolute. Under some circumstances, a court may prohibit a client from firing an attorney and order the attorney to continue representing the client. For example, a client typically cannot fire an attorney immediately before trial because it could enable clients to improperly delay the proceedings. Criminal defendants have a limited right to fire appointed counsel and receive alternative counsel criminal defendants also have a limited right to fire appointed counsel and represent themselves. Among other things, criminal defendants must express an unequivocal desire to represent themselves. In theory, this means that criminal defendants cannot fire appointed counsel only because they believe appointed counsel is bad. When a client fires an attorney and hires a new attorney, the former attorney may have a claim against the former client. In a civil claim, the former attorney may recover the value of the services rendered. Permissive Withdrawal While it is easy for clients to end an attorney-client relationship, it can be harder for attorneys. Model Rule 1.16B identifies several circumstances under which an attorney may end an attorney-client relationship. Attorneys can end attorney-client relationships at will, when it will not harm their clients. But this exception is largely irrelevant because clients typically abhor reluctant attorneys, and clients who suffer no harm rarely file malpractice actions. Clients who can afford another attorney say good riddance, and clients who cannot are harmed. Attorneys can also end an attorney-client relationship if their client misbehaves. For example, attorneys can end an attorney-client relationship if their client uses their legal advice to break the law. Attorneys can also end an attorney-client relationship based on irreconcilable differences of opinion. And attorneys can end an attorney-client relationship if their client cannot or will not pay for representation or for any other good reason. However, attorneys cannot simply end an attorney-client relationship and walk away. They must seek permission from the court and cannot end an attorney-client relationship without the court's approval. If the court orders an attorney to continue representing a client, the attorney must comply, even if the attorney has good cause to withdraw. Typically, courts permit attorneys to withdraw only if they show that their client has retained other counsel or refuses representation. If the court permits withdrawal, the attorney must make a reasonable effort to protect the client's interests. Among other things, the attorney must provide reasonable notice of withdrawal to the client, transfer documents and property to the client, and refund any unearned payment or fees. However, the attorney may retain documents relating to the client to the extent permitted by law. Mandatory withdrawal. Under certain circumstances, attorneys must end an attorney-client relationship. Model Rule 1.16a provides that attorneys must withdraw if continued representation would cause a violation of the rules of professional conduct or some other law. Their physical or mental condition materially impairs their ability to represent the client, or the client terminates representation. Obviously, attorneys cannot represent clients seeking legal advice in furtherance of a criminal enterprise. For example, attorneys cannot provide legal advice that enables a client to commit or perpetuate fraud. However, attorneys are not required to withdraw from representation simply because their client suggests an improper or illegal action. On the contrary, they should counsel their client against such action and withdraw only if their client insists on proceeding. Attorneys also cannot represent a client if it creates a conflict of interest. If an attorney has previously represented a client with interests adverse to those of a potential or current client, the attorney must decline or withdraw from representation unless the client can and does provide Informed consent to representation. In some cases, a conflict of interest may preclude informed consent. Attorneys must also withdraw from representation if their physical or mental state will materially impair their ability to represent their client. Obviously, attorneys who incur serious physical or mental injuries may not be able to continue representing their clients. However, in some cases, they may be subject to discipline. Effective withdrawal Sometimes an attorney-client relationship doesn't really end, but just fades away. Often, an attorney represents a client in a matter, and the client has no need for further representation. For example, An attorney may represent a client in relation to a particular transaction or dispute, like the purchase of a home or an automobile accident. Ideally, the attorney and client will have formed an agreement, specifying the scope of representation, in which case the attorney-client relationship typically ends when the matter is concluded. But occasionally they may not. By accident or design. In that case, the attorney-client relationship still typically ends when the matter is concluded, although it may be less certain. In other cases, an attorney may have a long-term relationship with a client that gradually peters out over time. In that case, it may be hard to know whether and when the attorney-client relationship has ended. Worse, The attorney and client may disagree. An attorney may believe the relationship continues, only to be surprised when the client returns bills unpaid. And a client may believe the relationship continues, only to be surprised when the attorney ignores the client's affairs. Generally, an attorney-client relationship continues to exist, so long as a reasonable client would believe that it continues to exist. If an attorney wants to end an attorney-client relationship, the attorney should explicitly inform the client in writing that it has ended and return any documents or property that belongs to the client. But attorneys are often reluctant to end long-term attorney-client relationships in the hope that the client will eventually return and provide more business. In that case, courts will ask whether a reasonable client would believe that an attorney-client relationship continued to exist under the circumstances. Duties after withdrawal. Under Model Rule 1.16d, an attorney who withdraws from representing a client has a duty to minimize any potential harm to the client. Among other things, the attorney must provide reasonable notice of withdrawal, return any documents or other property that belongs to the client, and refund any unearned fees or payments. However, some attorney work product may belong to the attorney, and some states permit attorneys to retain the client's property until the client pays any outstanding fees. However, the attorney also has a permanent duty of confidentiality to former clients. The attorney as agent. The attorney client relationship is a principal agent relationship. The client is the principal and the attorney is the client's agent. But it is a unique form of principal agent relationship. Because the client's ability to control the attorney's exercise of agency is limited. And because the attorney has duties not only to the client, but also to the court and the public. Professional Relationships In this respect, the attorney-client relationship resembles other professional relations. In the doctor-patient relationship, patients decide whether to seek treatment, but doctors decide how to provide treatment. In the professor-student relationship, students decide whether to attend school, but professors decide what to teach. In an attorney-client relationship, the client decides the objectives, but the attorney decides the means. The client decides how much authority to delegate to the attorney and retains the right to make all major decisions, but cannot dictate all of the attorney's actions. The attorney is entitled and required to exercise independent judgment about how to achieve the client's goals. For example, in a contract negotiation, the client is entitled to decide the key terms, but the attorney must decide how to achieve them. In civil litigation, the client is entitled to decide whether to settle, but the attorney must decide whether to assert a particular claim or defense. And in criminal litigation, the client is entitled to decide whether to plead guilty, but the attorney must decide which witnesses to call and how to conduct cross-examination. Moreover, in an attorney-client relationship, The attorney not only has a duty to protect the interests of the client, but also has a duty to protect the interests of the court and the public. An attorney is an agent of both the client and the court. In theory, while attorneys must pursue the interests of their clients, they must not mislead the court or allow their clients to lie to the court. In practice, this is often easier said than done. Attorneys as agents. As agents of their clients, attorneys often have the authority to act on behalf of their clients. But it may take the form of express, implied, or apparent authority. Express authority. When an attorney acts pursuant to authority, Explicitly granted by the client. For example, clients can grant express authority to an attorney in an engagement letter or later instructions. Implied authority. When an attorney acts pursuant to authority necessarily granted by the attorney-client relationship. For example, attorneys have implied authority to exercise discretion on implementing the instructions of their clients. Apparent authority. When an attorney acts pursuant to authority, delegated by the client and an opposing party relies on the delegation, especially when the authority is normally reserved to the client. For example, if a client delegates the authority to approve a final settlement, and an opposing party relies on the delegation, the attorney may have apparent authority, even though the decision to approve a final settlement is normally reserved to the client. When attorneys act pursuant to express implied or apparent authority, their actions bind their clients. But when attorneys act without authority, their actions are ultra-vires, and may not be binding. When attorneys act without authority, they may also be liable for malpractice. Attorneys as fiduciaries. The attorney client relationship is unusual because attorneys are fiduciaries of their clients. A fiduciary is a person who holds a legal duty of trust with another party or Principle. A fiduciary duty is the highest standard of care. Accordingly, fiduciaries must act only for the sole benefit and interest of the principal and must put the interests of the principal above their own interests. As fiduciaries, attorneys have a legal duty to act only in the interests of their clients and to put the interests of their clients above their own interests. Accordingly, attorneys may never form a relationship that would create a conflict of interest with a current or former client without the client's informed consent. Client as principal. So decisions reserved to clients. As the principal, the client has the sole authority to make certain important decisions about their legal representation. Model Rule 1.2a provides that an attorney must respect a client's decisions about the goals of representation and consult with the client about the means of achieving those goals. It also identifies particular decisions that are reserved to the client, specifically the decision whether to settle in a civil case, and the decision how to plead whether to waive jury trial, and whether to testify in a criminal case. However, attorneys retain considerable discretion to make decisions about how to pursue representation, so long as those decisions are consistent with the client's decisions and implicitly authorized by the client as necessary to representation. In other words, The client is entitled to specify the goals of representation, but not to control the attorney's every decision in pursuit of those goals. Rule 1.2, Scope of Representation and Allocation of Authority Between Client and Lawyer, states that a lawyer shall abide by a client's decisions concerning the objectives of representation, and shall consult with the client as to the means by which they are to be pursued. A lawyer may take such action on behalf of the client as is impliedly authorized to carry out the representation. A lawyer shall abide by a client's decision whether to settle a matter. In a criminal case, the lawyer shall abide by the client's decision after consultation with the lawyer as to a plea to be entered, whether to waive jury trial, and whether the client will testify. Impaired clients. Attorneys often represent clients who have an impaired ability to make or express decisions. For example, attorneys often represent minors who cannot make legally binding decisions. Attorneys may also represent people with physical impairments that affect their ability to express their decisions or mental impairments that affect their ability to make decisions that are in their own best interests. When an attorney represents a legally, physically, or mentally impaired client, the client remains the principal and is entitled to dignity and respect. Accordingly, the attorney must provide relevant information to the client, consult with the client, and pursue the client's wishes. Whenever it is possible, and in the client's best interests. Sometimes impaired clients have legal representatives empowered to make decisions on their behalf. In that case, the attorney must ordinarily obey the decisions of the legal representative. But, the attorney must also inform the client about those decisions, and consult with the client whenever possible. Regardless, the attorney must always put the client's interests first. If the attorney represents the impaired client directly, then the attorney has a fiduciary duty to the client and must ensure that the legal representative's actions are in the client's best interests. If the attorney represents the legal representative, then the attorney has a fiduciary duty to the legal representative but still must ensure that the legal representative respects its own fiduciary duty to the client. For example, if an attorney represents a client who is a minor, the attorney must obey the decisions of the client's guardian, but must also consult with the client in order to determine the client's wishes and ensure that the client's guardian does not violate its fiduciary duties. Likewise, if an attorney represents a comatose client, the attorney must obey the decisions of the client's guardian, but must also ensure that the guardian does not violate its fiduciary duties. Sometimes it is unclear whether a client is impaired. The client may be unable to communicate with the attorney, unable to make consistent decisions, unable to make good decisions, or unwilling to conform to social expectations. These are hard cases. If a direct attorney-client relationship is untenable, the attorney should seek the appointment of a legal representative. But if the attorney can represent the client directly, then the attorney must act in the client's best interests. This can create a conflict if the attorney believes that the client's instructions are inconsistent with the client's best interests. Ex parte communications. Model Rule 4.2 prohibits attorneys from engaging in ex parte communications, or communications with a represented person without the consent of that person's attorney or the permission of the court. In theory, the purpose of the prohibition on ex parte communications with represented persons is to help protect clients and ensure they receive the advice of counsel. As Model Rule 4.2 Comment 1 explains. This rule contributes to the proper functioning of the legal system by protecting a person who has chosen to be represented by a lawyer in a manner against possible overreaching by other lawyers who are participating in the matter, interference by those lawyers with the client-lawyer relationship, and the uncounseled disclosure of information relating to the representation. The prohibition on ex parte communications applies to all represented persons involved in a matter. Accordingly, it prohibits ex parte communications with not only represented persons who are adverse parties, but also represented persons who are co-parties or non-parties. And it applies to direct communications. In other words, an attorney cannot avoid the prohibition by instructing or advising a non-attorney to contact a represented person. Furthermore, The prohibition on ex parte communications is not waivable by the client, and it applies even if the client initiates the communication, requiring the attorney to immediately end the communication. The prohibition on ex parte communications with represented persons may also apply to the employees of represented organizations. Most courts have held that attorneys cannot engage in ex parte communications with employees of a represented organization who control the organization, acted on behalf of the organization in the matter, or make legal decisions for the organization. In other words, upper management and people directly involved in the matter are off-limits, but other employees are not. In particular, Former employees are generally fair game. Notably, Model Rule 4.2 does incorporate a mens rea requirement. Attorneys cannot be disciplined for engaging in an ex parte communication with a represented person unless they knew or should have known that the person was represented in relation to the matter. And Model Rule 4.2 does not prohibit all ex parte communications. Nothing prevents an attorney from engaging in ex parte communications with a represented person about subjects unrelated to the matter in which they are represented. And nothing prevents an attorney who is not representing anyone in relation to a matter from engaging in ex parte communications with the represented party. In other words, Attorneys may continue to pursue unrelated business, and clients may consult with outside counsel. In addition, Model Rule 4.2 only applies to attorneys. Nothing prevents represented persons from engaging in ex parte communications with each other. And if represented persons choose to communicate with each other, their attorneys may provide them with advice. Model Rule 4.2, Comment 4, states that parties to a matter may communicate directly with each other, and a lawyer is not prohibited from advising a client concerning a communication that the client is legally entitled to make. Indeed, attorneys can probably even advise their clients to engage in ex parte communications with represented parties. Rule 4.2, Communication with Persons Represented by Counsel, states that in representing a client, a lawyer shall not communicate about the subject of the representation with a person the lawyer knows to be represented by another lawyer in the matter, unless the lawyer has the consent of the other lawyer or is authorized to do so by law or by court order. Moving to attorney's fees. Attorneys can only charge a reasonable fee for their services, but the reasonableness of an attorney's fee depends on the circumstances. Lawyers can and do charge very different fees for their services, and contingent fees necessarily reflect the risk of failure. In theory, State bar associations are supposed to ensure that attorneys charge reasonable fees, but in practice, they are reluctant to question attorneys' fee arrangements. In fact, contract law may protect clients from excessive fees more effectively than the rules of professional responsibility. Restatement 3rd of the Law Governing Lawyers, Section 34, Reasonable and Lawful Fees, states that a lawyer may not charge a fee larger than is reasonable in the circumstances or that is prohibited by law. Contingent fees. Typically, attorneys charge an hourly fee for their services, often billed in some fraction of an hour. But some attorneys charge a fixed fee for their services. Historically, the most Prestigious law firms charged a fixed fee for their services, often refusing to provide an itemized list of the services they had provided. Today, detailed building is the norm, with the exception of attorneys providing retail representation in routine matters and appointed counsel for indigent defendants. However, In some circumstances, attorneys and their clients will form a contingent fee agreement, under which both parties agree that the attorney is entitled to a certain percentage of any recovery, often 33%. Contingent fee arrangements are typically associated with personal injury actions, where the plaintiff often has a strong claim but lacks the financial resources to pursue litigation. Under a contingent fee agreement, the attorney can fund the litigation in exchange for a chance of a much larger recovery. But contingent fee agreements can also make sense when the client wants to control an attorney's incentives. Under an hourly billing agreement, the attorney has an incentive to bill as many hours as possible, even as the additional work produces diminishing returns to the client. And under a fixed fee billing agreement, the attorney has an incentive to do as little work as possible, but under a contingent fee agreement, the attorney simply has an incentive to win. Under Model Rule 1.5c, contingency fee agreements cannot be unreasonable and must be in writing. In addition, contingent fees are prohibited in criminal law and family law actions. Attorneys cannot form a contingent fee agreement to be paid only if a criminal defendant is acquitted or receives some other favorable outcome the attorneys typically cannot form a contingent fee agreement to receive compensation from the resolution of a domestic dispute. Now moving to the financial relationships with clients and client trust accounts. When attorneys hold money or property in trust for their clients, they must never commingle it with their own funds or property. On pain of sanction, typically suspension or disbarment. In other words, if a client deposits funds with an attorney, the attorney must place those funds in a trust account. And if a client deposits physical property, the attorney must also hold that property separately, typically in a safety deposit box. Commingling funds or property is a per se violation, with few exceptions primarily in order to enable an attorney to pay any banking fees on a client's trust account. State bar associations carefully monitor attorney trust accounts and punish any commingling of funds. Some state bar associations even randomly audit attorney trust accounts, looking for violations. State rules of professional conduct typically require attorneys to deposit client funds In an interest-bearing trust account, many states require attorneys to deposit some or all of the interest generated by client trust accounts into a common fund. This interest on lawyers' trust accounts, or IOLTA, fund is used to provide legal services to indigent clients. Attorneys may withdraw funds from a client's trust account in order to pay the client's attorney's fees as they are earned. The rule against commingling prohibits attorneys from using funds from a client trust account to pay business or personal expenses, and the attorney must return any funds remaining in a client's trust account to the client when the representation ends. When a client receives a settlement or award, the attorney must deposit the funds in the client's trust account and then withdraw funds to pay the client's attorney's fees and disperse to the client. Specifically, if the attorney and the client have a contingent fee arrangement, the attorney must pay the client's contingent fee from the client trust account. Equity as compensation Sometimes attorneys agree to accept an equity interest in their client's property in lieu of attorney's fees. For example, an attorney representing a corporation may accept shares of the company rather than cash. This kind of agreement can benefit both the client and the attorney, especially if the client is cash poor but is a promising investment. The client receives legal advice with no upfront expense and the attorney receives an investment potentially worth much more than the hourly fees. Moreover, the attorney has an incentive to provide the best possible advice because it will increase the value of their investment. But equity compensation is not limited to securities. An attorney may agree to represent a client in exchange for an equity interest in the client's real estate or a patent attorney may agree to prosecute a patent in exchange for an interest in the patent. In any case, the Model Rules of Professional Conduct permits equity compensation, but only if the attorney complies with the requirements of Model Rule 1.8a. Essentially, the attorney must disclose the terms of the agreement to the client. The attorney must advise the client to seek Independent legal counsel, and the client must provide informed consent to the agreement, all of which must be in writing. In addition, the terms of the agreement must be substantively fair and reasonable to the client. The concern is that the attorney's financial interest in the client's property could create a conflict of interest. In theory, Both the client and the attorney want the property to increase in value, but in some cases, the attorney's interest in the property could compromise the impartiality of the attorney's advice if a potential transaction would benefit the client but harm the attorney's property interest. Litigation Finance Historically, maintenance, champerty, and barratory were illegal and tortious. Maintenance is litigation funding by a disinterested third party. Champerty is litigation funding in exchange for a percentage of any recovery. And Baratree is frivolous litigation. The prohibition was intended to prevent frivolous and abusive litigation. The concern was that nobles would abuse the court's to harass their enemies and extort settlements. Until recently, United States courts maintained the prohibition on maintenance and champerty. But people began to question the legitimacy of rules that prevented people from pursuing valid claims simply because they could not pay attorney's fees. First, courts began permitting contingent fee agreements, which are champerty- But limited to lawyers. And then they began permitting litigation finance agreements, which are champerty for everyone. Contingent fee agreements are literally champerty because an attorney agrees to fund litigation in exchange for a percentage of the recovery. And litigation finance agreements are champerty squared because a third party agrees to fund the litigation in exchange for a percentage of the recovery. But courts have held that both contingent fees and litigation finance are fine because they enable people to pursue valid claims. Now moving to organizations as clients. When an attorney represents an organization, the attorney's client is typically the organization and only the organization. An attorney may represent any kind of organization, irrespective of its form. Obviously, an attorney may represent an organization that is a legal entity, like a corporation or a limited liability company. But an attorney may also represent an organization that is not a legal entity, like a partnership or an unincorporated association. In all of these cases, the attorney may represent the organization without representing the constituents of the organization. But an organization is a legal fiction that can act only through its agents. Accordingly, the attorney advises the organization by advising its agents who make decisions on behalf of the organization, depending on their role in the organization. In other words, attorneys advise organizational clients by advising non-client agents who make decisions that bind the organizational Client. The agents of an organizational client may consult with each other before making decisions for the organization. They may individually ask the attorney for advice about how to act on behalf of the organizational client. They may ask the attorney to advise them collectively about the organizational client's options. And they may ask the attorney for advice about the statements, decisions, And actions of their agents. The attorney must provide legal advice to the agents of an organizational client in their capacity as agents of that client. But the attorney must always remember that the client is the organization, not the organization's agent. When the attorney advises an agent, the attorney must provide advice for the benefit of the organization, not the agent. And the attorney must ensure that the agents observe their duties to the organization. Specifically, an attorney representing an organizational client must ensure that its agents act consistently with the interests of the organization rather than their own interests. If an agent of an organizational client acts or refuses to act in a way that violates a legal obligation, to the organization, then the attorney must act to protect the interests of the organization. The attorney should generally report the concern to the management of the organization. In some cases, the attorney may even report confidential information or withdraw from representation if it is necessary to protect the interests of the organization. Now, moving to agents. As clients, In theory, an attorney who represents an organization represents only the organization and does not represent the organization's agents. However, organizations can act only through their agents, and when attorneys represent organizations, they do so by providing legal advice to the organization's agents who make decisions on behalf of the organization. Attorneys must convince the organization's agents to hire them. Attorneys must convince the organization's agents to follow their advice. And the attorneys must obey the decisions of the organization's agents. It is easy for attorneys representing an organization to see its agents as their clients rather than the organization itself. But when attorneys represent organizations, they must never treat its agents as their clients. They must always represent the interests of the organization and only the organization. Attorneys representing an organization must always act in the best interest of the organization, and they must ensure that its agents also act in the best interests of the organization. And if the interests of the organization conflict with the interests of the agents, the attorney must always pursue the interests of the organization. Usually, the interests of an organization and its agents coincide. And the agents pursue the interests of the organization to the best of their ability. But that is not always the case. Sometimes the interests of an organization and its agents diverge, and the agents pursue their own interests at the expense of the organization. Attorneys representing organizations must always be vigilant to ensure that the organization's interests are aligned with the interests of its agents, and that its agents are acting in the organization's interests. Rather than their own. For example, if an agent wants to make a transaction on behalf of the organization that will benefit the agent at the organization's expense, the attorney must object. Likewise, if the agent wants to disclose confidential information about the organization that will benefit the agent but harm the organization, the attorney must. Object. And agents as quasi-clients. Attorneys representing an organization must always be careful to ensure that its agents do not become quasi-clients. If an attorney is retained by an organization, then the attorney has an express attorney-client relationship with the organization. But in order to represent an organization an attorney must provide legal advice to its agents who will act on the organization's behalf. Accordingly, the attorney must only provide legal advice relating to the interests of the organization and must not provide legal advice relating to the interests of its agents. In fact, attorneys representing an organization should explicitly inform its agents that they represent the organization and not its agents and they should advise the organization's agents to seek outside counsel if their interests may diverge from the interests of the organization. In theory, an attorney representing an organization who wants to interview an agent of the organization can prevent the agent from becoming a client by explicitly warning the agent that the attorney represents the organization and does not represent the agent. This warning is often called the Upjohn warning because its purpose is to inform agents of their right to remain silent. After all, an organization cannot force its agents to testify against themselves, but it can fire them if they refuse to participate in an investigation. If an attorney representing an organization provides legal advice to an agent of that organization, then the agent may become a quasi-client of the attorney. That is awkward because it can create a conflict of interest. So what is the Upjohn warning? Here is the American Bar Association White Collar Crime Committee Working Group Model Upjohn Warning. I am a lawyer for Corporation A. I represent only Corporation A and I do not represent you personally. I am conducting this interview to gather facts in order to provide legal advice for Corporation A. This interview is part of an investigation to determine the facts and circumstances of X in order to advise Corporation A how to best proceed. Your communications with me are protected by the attorney-client privilege but the attorney-client privilege belongs solely to Corporation A, not you. That means Corporation A alone may elect to waive the attorney-client privilege and reveal our discussion to third parties. Corporation A alone may decide to waive the privilege and disclose this discussion to such third parties as federal or state agencies at its sole discretion, and without notifying you. In order for this discussion to be subject to the privilege, it must be kept in confidence. In other words, with the exception of your own attorney, you may not disclose the substance of this interview to any third party, including other employees or anyone outside of the company. You may discuss the facts of what happened but you may not discuss this discussion. Do you have any questions? Are you willing to proceed? Thanks, everyone. That's all I'd like to discuss in Section 2. Take care.